listening to the Wait What If podcast. Hey folks, thanks for checking out the Wait What If podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Sullivan. Today I'm just going to do a quick episode because I wanted to thank everyone. This is an impromptu episode. I um, just got the turkey in the oven and I decided to sit down and do a little recording because <sighs> because my news feed is being filled with um, all this anti-Thanksgiving stuff and I can't figure it out. It's like the curmudgeons are, are getting their tendrils is that the word their tentacles their tendrils into everything and apparently it's now racist misogynist paternal blah 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 to enjoy thanksgiving and i have so many problems with that i don't even know where to begin but let's just start with say what thanksgiving in general is okay what my definition is family friends we get together we enjoy foods we teach our children to be thankful that's what it comes down to, being thankful for what you have. Even if you don't have anything, you'd be thankful for what what people are doing for you. I worked a homeless shelter once. Uh, a homeless person who goes and has a turkey dinner on Thanksgiving at a homeless shelter should be thankful for that. We should be thankful that we wake up every morning, that we can move our legs, that we can walk, that we can do a podcast, that we can live in a world where we have supercomputers in our hands that tell us all the information we ever want to know. We live in a wonderful age, and we have nothing but thanks that we should be getting. Now, some people are going through some hard times, and that's true. But this is the time where you stop and you think about, what are the good things that I'm going through right now? And that tends to, I don't know, uh, make you less pessimistic, make you more optimistic. You know, optimism, I work in medicine. People who are optimist or optimistic tend to have longer lives, and they tend to be healthier. So... Food, football, and oppression. That's what Thanksgiving uh, has come to mean for many Americans. Um, about 10 years ago, Seattle Public Schools, uh, they, they tweeted, or I don't know if they had Twitter back then, they put out an article where Thanksgiving should be a time of mourning. And it's a bitter reminder of 500 years of betrayal. So this narrative describes the pilgrims as arrogant oppressors who fled persecution only to become the persecutors themselves. They deprive Native Americans of their land and their lives. But that's wrong on every count. First of all, pilgrims didn't cross the ocean to flee persecution. People don't realize that. And they didn't do it to, to flee England. They'd be living for over a decade in Holland, Europe's most tolerant nation, at least it was at the time, and they, they were there for religious reasons. They wanted freedom from interference from the Church of England. They feared, um, when they were in Holland, they feared the loss of a culture, let's say. Uh, their children started speaking Dutch. They started adopting Dutch, um, uh, I don't know what you say, <laughs> culture. Um, and they didn't want that. Uh, apparently at the time, if you look at the history books, the Dutch, the Dutch, the Dutch culture was very uh, materialistic, ironic how, um, how the... the land that they moved to eventually became materialistic, but they wanted to get away from that. So they left England. They didn't want to be under the Church of England. They went to Holland. Holland's like, yeah, come on in. This is great. Have a good time here. And then they were like, wait a minute, our kids are turning Dutch, so let's go to a place where there's no one, at least um, no one that we know about. So 
um, they ended up risking. I was talking to my wife about this this morning. Can you imagine? So they started off with like 103, 102, 103 pilgrims. And a year later, so they got to the coast. It was um, winter. And by the time they made it to shore, there was only like 50 of them left. So can you imagine? I mean, I worry about driving my kid to school that I'm going to get into an accident. Or I worry about them playing street hockey outside or wiffle ball. Uh, can you imagine taking your kids and getting into a rickety ship and saying, we're going to basically an alien world? We don't know what's there. Could be monsters, um, could be uh, bad guys. We, we don't know. Oh, and we could get sick on the trip. Imagine having that conviction where it's like, well, it's better than what we have here, so we're going we're gonna to take that risk. It's unbelievable. So anyways, they risked uh, all the reasons that I just previously mentioned is why they risked that dangerous uh, voyage back in 1620. So it wasn't because they were running from oppression, but because they were running towards uh, holiness, actually, fulfilling a fateful mission to build an ideal Christian commonwealth. That's what it came down to. Um, it was really based on their faith. Now, I'm, I'm agnostic when it comes to religion. I, I don't, I, I just don't feel like I have any, <laughs> any religious group has ever laid out before me. Here's the, here's what we have. And I was like, oh yeah, that's totally it. I'm just, that's not me doesn't mean I'm not spiritual. Um, and people who say they're spiritual but not religious, it drives me nuts. And I guess I'm falling into that category. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is I, I, I just don't know. So I understand. I understand people with conviction um, that, that's based on a religion. And, and uh, that's why they did this. So they initially planned to plant this model society in a wild wolf-infested island known to natives as Manhattan. But winds and tides blew them over 250 miles off course, dumping the Mayflower on a frozen east coast of Massachusetts. Actually, I think, I want to say they were heading down towards uh, Virginia originally, but, you know, they're, again, they're in a sailboat, a tiny little sailboat. So somehow the pilgrims saw their horrible situation as a gift from God, especially after, and this is a legend, but um, some histories or historians say this is true. Uh, a giant wave picked up the boat, or one of the boats, of a scouting party uh, in December, and it it uh, deposited them on a little island within sight of a ideal location. Uh, it was a deserted in it, uh, excuse me. It was a deserted Indian village with cleared land, stored supplies of corn, and a reliable source of water. No, these supposedly cruel conquerors never actually invaded that village. Instead, they expressed a desire to pay the natives for the dry corn that they found. If only they could find someone to pay. But the former inhabitants had perished during these years of uh, plague, which at those times was probably smallpox. Uh, and it immediately, that, that immediately preceded the pilgrims' arrival. So, and that's another point to bring up that, it, yes, yes, okay, let's stop and think of this for a minute. Let's say there were 10 million, I don't know how many, there's estimates that there were 10 million Indians here, Native Americans, uh, whatever, um, prior to the arrival of the Europeans. The biggest killer of the natives here was diseased. They just didn't have the immune system. And that's a terrible tragedy. One in 10 died, and it might have even been higher than that. One in 10 died of disease. And that's one of the um, horrible, really untold stories of the native people, how this, the, you know, all basically took was someone sneezing, and then uh, a few years later, 90% of everyone you know are dead. Uh, and that's one of the... The other thing, too, and I, I, I think about this a lot, that technology drives 
history. And wherever the technology starts, the you might hear my kids talking in the background because, again, this is Thanksgiving, so I apologize uh, for that. But wherever the technology starts, it, it kind of sets history into motion. So at the time, the Europeans were technologically advanced so far as navigation and, um, I guess, colonialization. So that's why they went to the Americas. But had the Indians developed... Um, uh, seafaring navigation uh, methods that could bring them to Europe and the Europeans, you know, just say that they were still living in their caves uh, or in a, what they call a Neolithic tribal type of society, then yeah, maybe it would be the opposite. Maybe the Indians would come over. So technology really set forth everything that happened from, from the point of really <laughs> from the point of the initial human um, society up until now. There's something else uh, I think, I think we should bring up. Right. Yes, some of the settlers uh, committed some heinous crimes, and that's that's a big pool of people because the earliest what the earliest people that landed anywhere in North or South America was like the 1400s. I might be wrong on that. I'm not an early American historian here. I actually studied um, modern European history during during college, but whatever. History is often seen through the lenses of of modern times, meaning that I can look back and judge heinous acts of say burning witches at the stake. Now, this is where a slope becomes slippery because I would never condone burning anyone at the stake because I wasn't alive back then. But who knows what I would have believed 400 years ago. Humans, the human worldview evolves and the way people thought in a, in a previous time, we have really no right to judge that. Um, we can judge it today and say it was barbaric and heinous. Okay, but those people that had that had acted that way that's that was their worldview, you know. They didn't. I when I was in Iraq, uh, I had a pilot that that once told me we had gotten shot at, and I was pissed for obvious reasons. And he was like, "Do you know what? That guy, that's a farmer who basically lives in the Stone Age, right? He has no electricity, he has no internet. All he has is his Quran, and he has his family, and that's it. And then someone comes up to him and they say, "Do you see these?" airplanes coming in here those are those are americans and they're on a crusade to destroy um your religion they're, they're destroy your way of life here's a weapon shoot at them and and his worldview is such that i was the aggressor in this situation and so he shot at me and when i look back on that i go you know what i can't really blame the guy i can't blame him because it, had i not known what i know or let's say um uh, we didn't have all this technology and someone came and invaded America, and the only information I had was that these people were going to commit American genocide, I absolutely would fight back because it's my worldview. So I kind of got um, sidetracked there. But I guess the whole point is, and here's another point of this too, when we look back on uh, Thanksgiving, right? So Thanksgiving specifically, we like to um, separate ourselves into teams, the Europeans and the Native Americans, even today. And they say, well, if you're white and you're celebrating Thanksgiving, well, you are, um, I don't know, perpetuating the negativity towards um, uh, Native people. And I say, no, I say, and, and this sounds cheesy, but we are a collective, collective group of humans. And we should accept our actions as a collective species rather than um, separate ourselves into teams now. What do I mean by that? So the Nazis, we look back at Hitler, 1945, and we say, or 1940, whatever, 1939, he came into power. And we say, shame on him. 
That was a horrible thing he did. And those Nazis that followed him, they were evil people. Absolutely. I agree 100%. But to point fingers at them and say that was a different that was a different group of people. I would never do that. You don't know because you weren't alive back then. You have no idea how you would have acted within that worldview. So so instead of, I guess, filling the roles of colonialist and oppressed in modern day, what we should do is look at our historical, look at it in historical context and say, okay, these things happened and, um, and, and we can learn from them and we can be grateful that we have a society that uh, it learns from its mistakes and moves forward and a society that allows people who were once oppressed to, I don't know, um, look at Barack Obama. You know, 150 years ago, uh, his, his descendants were slaves. And then 150 years later, we elect him as the most powerful man in the world. So, so we can live in the past or we can look at the present. And then we say, well, well, there are racists out there. Sure, absolutely, there are racists out there. Um, I, don't, I honestly don't know any. I know that there's a trend to call everyone racist nowadays, um, so we can repent, I guess, as a whole rather than um, put the onus on the individual. But personally, I think that the uh, racists that are are blatantly racist, they're assholes are going to be assholes. There's nothing you can do about it. And if they start spouting racist rhetoric and now... Again, who defines it as that? I define it as anyone who talks down on somebody else because of their their race. That's basically what it means to me. I don't care what color you are as the person who's saying this stuff. If you are judging a person by their skin instead of the content of their character, then you are in fact a racist. So big tangent. Let's get back to the pilgrims. So one of the few survivors um, of that whole horrible journey um, Hold on, let me back up a bit. We were talking about that they they landed on a or they inhabited a uh, uh, Indian settlement where all the people had died from smallpox, and that's when I went on my my little tangent right there. One of the survivors of the smallpox turned up a few months later to the English people who were or for the pilgrims who were living in that village. And this guy's story in general is amazing. Against all odds, he proved to be the single human being on the continent best suited to help struggling settlers. Basically, he spoke English. The entire continent, I don't know how many spoke English, but wasn't that many. And this guy bumps into the people that found an empty village, and he's like, oh yeah, I, I can totally um, I can totally speak your, your uh, language. And his name was Squanto. And he had grown up in that, the very village that they were staying at. Um, and then a ruthless uh, sea captain kidnapped him as a boy, sold him into slavery in Spain. After four years, he was freed by some monks and then made his way to England and then finally sailed back across the Atlantic to find his friends and family wiped out by disease. Uh, horrible story. Cool guy. I would love to meet Squanto. Um, yeah. That's the other thing, too. We often say that... that, that um, People are racist, and maybe they are. Maybe people are racist against Indians. I don't know one. When I grew up, we wanted to be Indians. Me and my friends looked at them as these heroic um, wilderness people, which, you know, in that context they were, and we, we idolized them. We thought Indians were the coolest people on earth. So, and I think as a culture, as an American culture, we, we see them that way too. We see them as brave, and we see, and maybe, okay, those are all positive things, and maybe we're making a judgment about a group of people. But I think if you do that in a positive light, what's what's the harm? Are you going to say, no, 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 we're not like that at all? But whatever. So where was I again? 
so Squanto, over the next few months, helped the English newcomers plant crops, negotiate trade agreements uh, with the region's most important Indian chief, Massasoit, or Massasoit. I always said Massasoit. Um, the pilgrim leader, William Bradford, called Squanto a special instrument sent of God for their good. Again, remember, these guys are supposed to be oppressors, and he's saying he's a special instrument of God for their good. Come on now. Um, so now the celebration that we've eventually came to know as the first Thanksgiving actually involved a three-day harvest festival in October, and it was apparently inspired by the biblical holiday of what's called Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T, or the Feast of Tabernacles. 90, what they say, they estimate about 90 Indian warriors joined the 53, 53 from 103 surviving pilgrims for this occasion. Nearly half the colonists, remember, died during the, um, the previous winter. The Englishmen provided vegetables, fish, maybe, maybe wild turkeys, we don't know. Um, and the natives brought, uh, according to history books, five recently hunted deer as gifts. Uh, the preferred sport on this occasion, believe it or not, was shooting. The settlers and the Indians had a fierce fascination with guns. Um, another ugh, another tangent, sorry. Um, when I talk to my friends who don't understand guns, they don't understand the culture of independence that revolves around that. You know what? That's going to be another whole episode. Um, but yeah, it comes from, I believe that if, if you live in an area long enough, wherever it may be, if you're in the North or in the South or wherever, wherever you are in the entire world, after a few generations go, go by, your DNA seems to adapt to that area and to that culture. And I think, um, long story short, I think uh, guns and this idea of rebellious freedom is in the culture of America. And we can see it goes all the way back to uh, when the pilgrims had their little feast. Anyways, so these pilgrims, um, that was it, I guess. That was it. That was the, that was the whole story. Um, they never built their Plymouth settlement into a major colony. Uh, Boston later occupied Massachusetts Bay Colony, and then that grew, and then it swallowed up um, the pilgrims. So they eventually disappeared. But the sense of purpose of the original pilgrims left a permanent imprint on the national character. They maintained unshakable confidence in a God that protected them, not to grant special privileges, but to impose special responsibilities. They saw themselves as instruments, not authors, of a mysterious master plan. Today, our continued gifts and blessings, however you want to look at them, are so obvious and so overwhelming. One thing I like to say is we, we complain about uh, English... Um, it's getting loud here, so I better finish up here. But we complain about um, uh, colonial settlers and, and the European colonists here, but what did it bring? It brought the Constitution of the United States of America eventually. It brought people to the moon. It brought people like... Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. It brought people like George Washington. It brought the light bulb. It brought the internet. So however you look at it, the way that, that, that the course of history was set into action, we can say, okay, it was horrible. It was racist. And we should just repent for the rest of our lives. Or we could say people were put in a situation and they dealt with it the way they knew best in their worldview. We can judge it as evil if we want. Um, but we have to do is just respect history and we have to look and say, okay, this is what happened. This is what, what we have today. Because if you're going to repent for something that happened 400 years ago, then why aren't we repenting for what Genghis Khan did? Or why aren't we repenting for what um, Pol Pot did? Because we're all humans, and as that human race, we're part of the population that has committed atrocities. Otherwise, we can just respect history, learn about it, revere about it, 
adopt our or embrace our American culture and our new culture, uh, whatever that is, and uh, enjoy it and enjoy the deeper meaning, which means family, friends, food, and giving thanks. So with that said, have a happy Thanksgiving. And uh, later on this week, uh, Joel Habaker, he's going to come on and talk about the crisis of leadership uh, in the modern world. Great talker, great guest. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy the show. That's all. Good night.